0: Welcome to chapels from Rosedale Bible College. Thanks for joining our community for weekly chapels recorded on our campus in Rosedale, Ohio. We hope you are challenged and inspired by what you hear. Enjoy. So we're talking about testing this morning. Although since so many of you are new, I figured I would begin with a a story. It's been all business in the classroom. And so you should get to know me a bit. Yeah. I grew up on Long Island in New York, where more than half of the population self-identifies as Catholic, and between a quarter and a half of the population of Long Island claims Italian ancestry, ethnicity. This is a picture of Lombardi's Market, which is a a deli uh, near my hometown. Roughly, Long Island is about as ethnically Italian as Lancaster P.A. is ethnically Amish Mennonite, and probably more Catholic than Lancaster P.A. is Anabaptist. So if you associate Lancaster with Amish tchotchkes and shoe fly pie, how much more strongly should you associate Long Island with marinara sauce and hair gel? Billy Joel's Scenes from an Italian Restaurant is our 606. The Feast of San Gennaro is our relief sale. And if you associate Mennonite enclaves, like Lancaster, with an inward-looking Swiss-German Anabaptist culture, then you have compelling reasons, maybe more compelling reasons, to think of my home community as Narrow in its own way. If you weren't Catholic, I I generally assumed that you were Jewish or irreligious growing up. And I inherited a very skeptical view of non-Catholic Christians of whom there were not many in my community. And and 9-11 was a big deal for Long Island because it's so closely connected to, to New York City. And from my teenage point of view... Misguided Christian fervor uh, mixed with this reflexive post-9-11 patriotism had gotten us into war in Afghanistan and Iraq. It was to blame uh, for a spate of crimes against um, Middle Eastern 7-11 owners in my community. And and for all this, I blamed non-Catholic Christians, even though there were few uh, to be found, The few self-identified Christians in my world were mostly ex-Catholics. They were either liberals who joined the Episcopal Church in order to affirm their gay friends or family members, or they were these wild-eyed Pentecostals who retained every ounce of Catholic supernaturalism now expressed through tongue-talking and spiritual warfare and visions of the imminent end. And I had a crush on one such wild-eyed Pentecostal, total babe, uh, but if you're, if you're listening to this, uh, Joy, the M-Train has left the station. My wife is sitting right there. <laughs> anyway, when our choir director uh, played Rent the Movie over the TVs on our coach bus uh, as we traveled to a competition, choir competition, I, I was quietly troubled by Joy's quiet claims that AIDS was God's judgment on gay people. Uh, Romans 1, of course. Catholics don't read their Bibles. Now it would be wrong to hold the adult Joy or her church accountable for the comments of a 16-year-old girl, really, trying to make sense of a complicated world. But these are my memories. And it's only fair to note that Joy was harassed for her faith. Some kids from our school stole a statue of the Virgin Mary from the Catholic shrine near my house and smashed it and left it on her doorstep. But Joy persevered in spite of testing and her parents pastored a scrappy little Pentecostal church on the wrong side of the tracks and it fascinated and, and terrified me. It's a picture of the inside. It was dark. It was loud. It was chaotic. Her dad and her older brother would, would shout out over the dark congregation, which would respond with spontaneous, uh, ecstatic utterances. And her mom, who had, a, who had a psalmist's gift, she would say, would lead these passionate, extended songs, again, punctuated with spontaneous prayer, and her church has grown in the last 20 years. Now, judging by the YouTube stream of last week's service, Joy sings those songs, accompanied by her husband on the guitar. Today I think of Joy very affectionately, but then my experience of Joy and her church only confirmed my inherited sense that that Christians, understood there as non-Catholics, are scary and bad And you should avoid them. And this conviction was especially sharpened for me after Joy went to junior prom with Travis Cherry instead of me. Uh, Many of you will no doubt have noticed that while I still smell like baronara sauce and hair gel a lot of the time, I do not fear and mistrust non-Catholic Christians anymore. In fact, I am one. When it was time for me to go to college, I went, like many Long Island teenagers do, upstate to a public college in the SUNY system, S-U-N-Y, State University of New York. At that time, my school was branded as the Public Honors College of New York. And this meant, naturally enough, that everybody there had a chip on their shoulder, something to prove. They could have gone somewhere more prestigious, but SUNY was affordable. And Geneseo was just as good, right? Right? Right. And this fostered a work-hard, play-hard environment. Two T-shirts, which you could purchase up at the store on Main Street, capture the atmosphere really well. The first was, was crimson, and it had the Harvard seal on the front, and in big letters on the top it said, Harvard, and then underneath in small letters for people who couldn't get into Geneseo. As if, right? The other one said, SUNY Geneseo, out-thinking and out-drinking since 1867. (laughs) It sounds funny, but the cost was real. Geneseo students carried that competitive edge with them, whether it was a a school night or a weekend, in parties and in the classroom. And I think each year I was there, at least one student died from alcohol poisoning or snorting too much coke or some combination of the two. Uh, I left after three years. Much more so than Joy's Pentecostal church, which has changed names, but then it was like New Hope United in Christ Full Gospel Fellowship, or, you know, some really long, awesome. More so than Joy's church, Geneseo was loud, dark, and chaotic. And of course, so was I. I certainly didn't stand above the, uh, the party scene, as our dean of students might put it. As far as I could tell, the only people who reliably did stand above the party scene were the students from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, evangelicals, non-Catholics. They lived lives of beautiful integrity in a very disordered place. They maintained clear boundaries without being condescending scolds like most of the RDA team at, at Geneseo. They managed to live above sin without looking down on people who were living in sin. It's a rare thing. I think especially of Nate Giracci, Italian guy from Long Island, pictured center from the left, who came from Smithtown Gospel Tabernacle, another Pentecostal. And not only was Nate very, very holy, he was very bright, and today he lives in the Bronx and uses his considerable gifts to teach history in public schools and to do interracial church and to run triathlons. Nate revealed to me that things were different, more complicated than I had thought at first. And in light of Nate's life, his existence, and because of Christians like him, I had to revise my views. After Geneseo, it seemed to me that Christians are not scary or bad, and you should stick with them. Today we have to do with James, a man who also had to change his mind. There are at least two, and possibly four, men identified as James in the New Testament. Douglas Moo, eminent New Testament scholar, argues that only two of these men were prominent enough to simply identify themselves as James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, as verse 1 of our text does first would be James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. And this James is one of the original 12 apostles, but he's, he's martyred very early in the church's history, and we get that story in uh, Acts chapter 12. Second, we get James, the Lord's brother, mentioned by Paul as a leader in the Jerusalem church. In Galatians chapter 1. And Acts 15 confirms that that this James, the brother of Jesus, is living after James, the son of Zebedee, is martyred. And therefore, the best candidate for the author of our text is James, the brother of the Lord. What do we know about this guy? Well, he's he's a brother of Jesus. And he's uh, kind of used by the unbelieving crowd in Jesus' hometown to undercut Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. Isn't this this the brother of James? We know him. He's nothing special. James is is part of the family that rebukes Jesus as insane in Mark 3. Very clear that, that James rejects Jesus during his earthly ministry. It's even possible that when Jesus was crucified, James thought it was a good thing. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that James met the resurrected Jesus and had to revise his views. He had to recognize Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And that's how James relates to Jesus in the first verse of this text. James becomes recognized as a pillar of the church. He makes wise judgments about controversial topics informed by Scripture. And eventually, church tradition tells us that he's martyred for Jesus, right? That he's thrown off the pinnacle of the temple, survives, and then is beaten to death with stones and clubs, If James were standing in front of you giving his testimony, he'd likely say that he had once foolishly rejected Jesus, but faced with the risen Christ, he responded with repentance, turning away from his error and faith. James is is redeemed, is saved. Once foolish, James becomes wise, and he becomes recognized as wise by the community of people who also call Jesus Lord. The church recognizes James as a wise teacher. And James isn't just concerned with making the correct judgments, the correct distinctions. His witness is embodied, it's lived, and he dies in it. James bears witness to Jesus with his life and with his death. I think we might say that the James' story is our story here at Rosedale. We're here to be encountered by the truth of the gospel in God's word, through God's spirit, recognized among the fellowship of the church, those people who call Jesus Lord. We're here to repent of the ways that we've all regarded Jesus, his earthly ministry, especially his cross, as insane and foolish. We're here to go wise unto salvation through the faithful study of the scriptures. We want to learn how to discern complicated, controversial, chaotic, dark, twisted situations according to God's word. We're here to prepare as witnesses, proclaiming and establishing the good news with our lives and with our deaths. Now, the so-called letter of James does not follow a typical New Testament letter form if you're in 1 Corinthians, you know a lot about this. It doesn't read like a personal letter either. James was likely circulated among scattered communities of Jewish background Christians. And frequent reference to trials in James suggests that the primary audience was likely suffering. Maybe they were expelled from mainstream Jewish life in the synagogue. James reads, not like a letter, so much as it reads like a collection of brief sermons focused on practical faithfulness amid challenging, dark, chaotic circumstances. So we might consider James a collection of wisdom sermons. Wisdom in the Bible uh, you know, is, not, is not the sage meditating on the mountaintop. It's the craftsman or woman, the right? person who knows how to do well, to live well in God's world. And so James is practical instruction about how to live well in a world where Jesus is Lord, but where most people, even Christians, reject Jesus as Lord in their thinking and in their living. James is helping us to do what he had to do, to unlearn false ways of thinking and living and live as a witness to the truth. The first homily in James, deals with trials. And the word that we hear translate trials often gets translated temptation, as in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. And that's not a wrong translation, but I think it might be a little bit misleading because for us, I think temptation usually evokes this internal struggle, right? You have anxiety, uh, lust, impulse control, And the word that we're dealing with here has a much broader range. It can refer to those internal struggles, but it can also refer to external struggles like persecution, poverty, marginalization. Both uses of the word are are united by a general sense that this is hard stuff. But that's not all. More broadly, this word is about being put to the test, testing. You get it in verb form as well. And it might surprise you where it pops up. Paul Paul and his companions uh, try to enter Bithynia. Uh, they, they, They test it. They test it out. They try to go. But the spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to continue. Jesus' opponents test him when they ask him questions and when they ask him for signs. God's people test and try God's grace, his tolerance of sin with their wicked behavior. And we're even commanded to test our own faith and the faith of others. Test is not a purely negative thing, even if it is often hard. Jesus asks questions to test and to try Philip, even though the Gospel of John is very clear that, that Jesus knows what Philip is going to say, which is interesting. And Satan tests Jesus famously in the wilderness. So testing is the kind of engagement, often involving hardship or conflict, that reveals something. And if we're living in a world where Jesus is Lord, we can be confident that testing reveals something valuable. So let's turn to James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If you take an education class, maybe with Phyllis or when you leave Rosedale, Uh, You might learn the phrase formative assessment. I think testing in this passage is is something like a formative assessment. Formative assessments don't determine the final grade in a class. They're usually not recorded in that way. Rather, The purpose of a formative assessment, a formative test, is to reveal student progress, to identify areas for growth, and to support learning. It's it's like, Jace, what's a positional sanctification, right? And if Jace didn't answer that question well, I know we have to go over it again. And if he, he did, uh, I'd know that we could move on. We could continue growth and learning. And sometimes we might not like that kind of testing. It could be embarrassing to be called out and spontaneously asked a question that you might not know the answer uh, to. And if, if Jace was thinking, I'm really doing well in First Corinthians, and then I caught him off guard he might not like what the the formative assessment, the test, reveals. The entire act of receiving and answering such questions and then having our answers evaluated can be very unpleasant. But if we endure such testing, we're transformed, like, like James was transformed, like Jace is being transformed. Testing can make us more mature and complete. Testing can make us more mature and complete. Uh, But not, that should say not, but not all testing makes us more mature and complete. I think we can think of examples, right, where hardship has made people uh, bitter rather than noble. And so it's worth asking, what kinds of people grow from trials, from testing. Under what conditions can such hardship help us to grow? Does James have any practical advice, any wisdom for us about how to live well in a world full of such tests? I think he does. If any of you lacks wisdom, lacks that practical know-how in this regard, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe, and not doubt, because one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. If you don't know what to do in a time of trial, James's answer, his practical advice, what you should do, is that you should turn to God who is gracious, who gives to all, who makes the sun to shine on the wicked and the righteous alike. This gracious God, who is kind to people who don't deserve it, intends to use your trials, to steady you in that dark and chaotic world, to, to use hardship... To make you more fully what he has declared you to be in Christ Jesus. Holy, righteous, and redeemed. To work out that positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. But faith. Faith in this gracious God. Is essential to reliably, steadily growing in the midst of trials that knock us around. waves and breakers. If you don't believe that God is for you, that God is gracious, that he intends to redeem your hardship, use it to transform you to be more like Jesus, regardless of your unworthiness, then you're going to to stay storm-tossed. Faith in God's grace brings salvation even through trials. James continues. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they'll pass away like a wildflower. The sun rises with scorching heat. Everything's exposed to it. It it withers, the plant. Its blossom falls. Its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business, even as they keep living their comfortable lives. But blessed is the one who keeps going, who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. All of life is recast by this approach to suffering. Suffering in light of the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, whom we call Lord. Now, the hardship of poverty affords unique advantages. Now, the ease of wealth is fleeting. It might actually disadvantage those who seek maturity through the patient endurance of trials. They'll wither away even as they go about Their business, although the righteous poor, unlike the recipients, likely of James' uh, writing, the first ones at least. Although, although they're suffering, although they're suffering like Jesus did during his earthly ministry when his own family rejected him as insane, they can expect to be crowned with glory and with life, just as Jesus is crowned today. By grace, through, through faith in this Jesus, you can do hard things. You can do hard things joyfully, purposefully, with endurance. Knowing that Jesus is Lord over all of it. Now, there's a caveat here. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, says James. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So don't be deceived. Dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, who is not like the stormy sea. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Let there be no confusion, says James. God is thoroughly for you. In him there is no darkness at all, no shadow of turn. He is good and he is gracious, and his design is to crown humanity with glory. We are responsible for our failures, not God. God. But God, in his great wisdom, in his his surpassing practical know-how, has ordered the work of our adversary, has ordered this fallen world to produce victory over evil. Like those who think they're killing Jesus, are, are crucifying the truth, they're the instrument by which God is accomplishing redemption. The cross is purposeful, it's not Jesus' story gone off the rails. So too... Are the hardships in your life subject to a sovereign God? For us, for Christians, for people who believe that Jesus is really Lord, the cross is also a trial. And remember, trials reveal things. What's revealed on the cross? Well, on the cross, God is revealed as a God of gracious, Love for sinners. A God who desires to redeem you, not because of your works, but because of his steadfast love. And the God who meets us on the cross is unchanging in his goodness and truth. He's completely worthy of your trust, even as you deal with your trials, even as you bear the disciples' cross. And so now, as James teaches us, let's come before him in prayer. And we're going to enter that space that I once found so scary and chaotic to do it. Lord God, you sent your apostle Paul to proclaim the message of the cross, the premise and pattern for our life in the church. You equipped your servant James, to make wise decisions by the light of your word, the same word that became flesh as Jesus Christ and went to the cross to redeem us from all our sins. Lord, our, our, our natural minds can't accept the cross. We recoil from it. We, we recoil from, from suffering. We can't see the order in this a seemingly chaotic world, and yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we confess that you are king, that you are Lord over all, and that the cross is where our redemption is accomplished. Help us to trust that you are working through the hard things in our lives. Help us to accept the cross as the pattern of our own lives, as we witness to Jesus, as we proclaim the good news wherever we go. Help us to accept uh, the hardships that you have uh, ordained as the means of sanctification, as ways of growing in likeness to Jesus, putting to death that carnal part of us that recoils from the cross and bringing to life the part of us that runs to the redemption that meets us there. And it's in the name of Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, our holiness, righteousness, and redemption, that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share so others can benefit from it as well. And be sure to check out our other podcasts at rosedale.edu slash podcasts.